0: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's q and I had to shoot these Thursday morning because I have to prepare for tomorrow's Whatnot stream with Tito from Macho Nacho Productions. That one's going to be fun and there's going to be some crazy rare stuff in there, so it's going to be expensive, but hopefully that'll be entertaining. I'll of course leave links and make sure to use the coupon code to get $10 off your first purchase if you're not on the platform yet. But anyway, let's jump in to see what the Q&A questions are this week and uh, see what we find. First up, over on Floatplane, Retro Sean wanted to chime in on the discussion of what's the best panel to use with an Xbox 360 or even a PS3, since a lot of their games are rendered at lower resolutions. And Sean wanted to remind everybody about lower resolution plasma TVs. And I forgot to talk about that, but I completely agree. As long as you do some kind of lag test to make sure it's not crazy, and I think in the context of plasma, maybe the two frames of lag there is actually easier to adapt to. Just listen to the whole conversation I did with Zach and Nick about that if you want more details. I won't waste everybody's time here who's already watched that, but I agree 100%. As long as the latency is reasonable, a lot of those older plasmas were spectacular. Even ones with really weird resolutions, like 1024 by 1024 You would think that a square resolution being stretched to a 16 by 9 plasma would destroy the image with some crappy scalar, but that wasn't always the case. Some of those TVs could accept 480p and 720p, and uh, like in the case of this 768p native resolution Samsung plasma, the scalers built in did a perfectly good job on them. So that's one of those things where if you have the ability to pick one up, you know, check your Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or whatever the kids are using these days to to get your used stuff. If you have the ability to try one. Absolutely, I love plasma TVs. I think um, they're they're a very unique look, and I think they're an excellent fit for that era and in fact, just you know I here comes a rant sorry warning, rant warning uh, it was always kind of my dream, which is definitely not going to happen uh, at least by me anytime soon, but to set up some kind of place where people could go and experience those consoles of the displays of that era. So imagine like walking into a giant warehousey place, which is like a museum, but also has a little rooms set up, and you can go into a room with an Xbox three sixty and be paired with the best display of that era, which I would probably argue that something like what Retro Sean just um just recommended might be what I would pair it with. I would pair a Wii with a, one of those ED TVs, not a dick pill TV, but it's they called them enhanced definition because it was 480p, but it was a true 31 kilohertz flat panel. So I think a Wii with, that, with one of those that has low latency, of course, you know, two frames or less, I think would be great maybe a 480p CRT. The Wii is certainly on that uh, on that line, but like a GameCube, I would definitely have on like a 480p consumer grade widescreen CRT. One of the ones without lag, of course. Um, the PlayStation 2, I don't know. That's a good question. Which one? Uh, so there's... There's really room for discussion on what is the best console to pair with the uh, the best display. And, of course, the word best is always tricky because what's best for you is the right answer, as long as it doesn't have lag. (laughs) So crazy amounts of lag. Um, So maybe someday I could work with an existing event place to do something like that. I just don't have the ability to do that now, but um, maybe I could work with somebody or at the very least, maybe I could start making videos using some of those TVs I have back there to show why I think For me personally, pairing a certain display with a certain console would actually be the best experience. Once again, this is just opinions. You could plug it into anything as long as there's not much latency and you like the experience. It's a win. But thanks for chiming in, Sean. Now over on Patreon, Richard Webster also wanted to jump in on the discussion of what display to use with their Xbox 360, and they use a Samsung 32-inch 1080p TV, I'm assuming an LCD, you know, LED backlit TV or something like that. And they specifically are getting component video out from their 360 because they want to run it through their crosspoint, so their Xtron crosspoint matrix switch. But after watching the latency video I posted, they ended up su- um, switching to a component to HDMI converter for once it gets to the flat panel TVs in order to uh, remove any possibility of extra lag added. So I think that's a good suggestion and a good setup, but I do, of course, because i me, want to add a few things that you might want to double check. First of all, if you have the ability to borrow a time sleuth and an HDMI to component converter, yeah, the opposite of what you have, you could just test the inputs on your TV and they might not have more latency. Most will though, so I think this is a safe bet, especially for the the 20 bucks that costs, you know, I don't like to have people waste money, but a DAC is something that you an analog to digital converter. In this case, an ADC is something that you could use for many different things. uh, And it'll probably save you some, uh, some latency. The only other thing to add is you will technically get a clearer picture staying in the total digital realm. So for a setup like that, it might be easier to just have your component video output of your 360 going to your cross point, your HDMI going, to your Samsung TV, and then just use the menu to switch between which is which. And in the case of like leaving an extra component video connection hooked up to your Samsung flat panel, just so you could go into the 360s menu and you know and then select okay, switch to HDMI. I think that's a worthy couple of bucks. I mean, you could find if quality isn't really an issue, you don't even have to hook up audio, and you could find any RCA cables to connect the crosspoint to the flat panel if really only you're using it for as testing and stuff like that. So I just wanted to throw that out there as another option i certainly don't think going from component to hdmi is bad i just always wanted to present the options and make sure that i made everything clear for people who are wondering because you know the awesome thing about these q a's is while yes i'm technically having a conversation with richard here i think a lot of other people hear these and go hmm i got a similar setup i wonder how that would apply to mine so that's why i always try to throw in a little extra info just for those use cases but uh thanks for chiming in richard Looks like Jason's post from last week got deleted, I guess, uh, whenever you post something really long on Patreon, you should probably break it up into multiple posts cuz I think that is how a lot of these end up getting lost. I never ever delete any questions. Um so it, you know, it's always an accident when they disappear, but I guess they still are disappearing and it's very common that it's because when it's a long post. So, just wanted to let everybody know. Uh but let me jump in and see what Jason's got uh for this week. First question, they have a bunch of CRTs now because of me. <laughs> and uh and- Uh, from consumer sets and security monitors to VGA monitors and antiques. Almost all of them seem to be less red when compared to their flat panel monitors, and they're not sure why that would be. They still look totally acceptable, but just noticeably less of that deep, bloody, true red. Why, Why might this be? Um... Calibration, how it came from the factory, that right, other side, I mean, that JVC 36 inch TV and also the 32 inch that I have of it is the opposite. They're, the reds are always too bright. And I think that's why, I think they kind of did that on purpose, like to make it pop. Um, and it's not as noticeable in TV as it is with video games, but especially older games with limited color palettes, you really notice the difference. And I believe different manufacturers would just do that. I think Sony has always accentuated the blue spectrum a little bit. Um, So it could just be that's how they came from the factory. It could be wear and tear over time. It could just need a calibration. Um, The capacitors for the red... Components could be closer to a hot spot, so they wore out faster. It could be a million reasons, but um, I would just say take whichever ones are the most important to you and start considering restoring those. At the very least, you know, unplug it from the wall, pop the back open, shine a flashlight in, and see if anything's leaking out. or, Or you know, if you find one of the monitors that you really like that definitely is in need of repair, maybe start with that one. If they're all in good shape, you could just appreciate them for as they are and you know just kind of laugh at how the calibration differences in like a mediocre flat panel tv versus a good crt are next They want to make a quick USB power or charging hub, so there's no need for the data in and data outlines. Would this be as simple as wiring a bunch of USB connectors together in parallel or sequence to a barrel connector for a 5-volt DC power supply? Most of the ones they see online include additional components like voltage regulars or potentiometers, and they're not sure why. So... uh, the, answer, the short answer to your question is, yeah, you probably could, but you probably wouldn't want to. Whenever you have power, there's always extra things on the circuit. So even if it's a case where you really just need power and ground and maybe shield and ground and nothing else, you'll still find other components for protection, for overvoltage, over uh, sometimes diodes to make sure current flows in one direction only. There's a whole lot that goes into power. And while I would normally say something like, Like in your questions of making your own cables, I would always just remind you how much of a pain in the butt that is, but also encourage you to go right ahead and try it because the worst thing that could happen in most cases is the cable doesn't work right and you end up picking up another one. When it comes to power, I would say unless you really want to make Uh, you know, creating power related devices, one of your hobbies, I wouldn't do it. I would save up and buy some kind of cheap power strip. Um, I have, I've seen USB hubs all the time. The one I've used for years is the Hutu brand. I couldn't make that up if I tried, Uh, but it has a couple of 2.5 amp charging ports as well as regular USB ports. So, i would strongly recommend just picking up something existing that's decent quality so you just don't ever have to worry about hurting your equipment with dirty power Uh, just my opinion though go right ahead and jump in if you want but i just felt the need to to post some kind of warning lastly they've been trying for weeks now to get the RetroTink 5x's 2560 by 1440p output to work on their sony fw900 which means converting hdmi to vga But have yet to find converters that allow this bandwidth. It's been suggested to just use 4x3 1920x1440 RetroTINK 5X output and then just scale it with a monitor since most converters support this option. I would agree 100%. Um, I think when you're talking about going to CRTs, there's a few things involved. First is just getting the converters that work right, which, you know, you've, you've run into that issue, and it may or may not be a solvable issue. I really am not sure, to be honest. Um, but on the flip side of things, if you're doubling 720 to 1440, it's not going to be as much of a difference on a CRT because of the way the image is drawn. Now, I'm oversimplifying. There's probably a bunch of people rolling their eyes right now, and there's a bunch of actuallys being geared up, but... Just overall, if you're taking something like a 720p image and you're displaying it on a CRT, running it in 1920 by 1440 might actually be an easier thing to do because it'll fill the whole screen, and you could use your monitor to squish it back down to the proper aspect ratio or something like that. So it it might be easier overall, depending on your content. But unless it's a native 2560 by 1440p image when it's being drawn on the CRT, running it through the retro tank and line doubling it and then redrawing it isn't the same as if you're doing that on a flat panel. So my my suggestion would be if you have a specific need for that exact resolution, there's a few other things you might be able to try, but if you're really just looking to line double whatever the source device that you have to that monitor in a higher resolution, I would think running it in that aspect ratio and resolution of 1920 by 1440 is totally fine. And then you could just use the geometry geometry controls on the monitor, or I guess even the controls on the RetroTINK 5X in order to tweak it however you would like. So, you know, just opinions, but hopefully I was able to steer you in the right direction. Daniel Martinez Gonzalez had a bunch of questions. I read every word, but just in the interest of everybody's time, I'm going to skip to the answers here. They recently acquired a 29-inch Philips CRT that has an RGB SCART input, and while they like that setup, they're about to move to a smaller apartment and have to box up all of their consoles and stuff for a while, which I absolutely feel your pain because I went from a small apartment in Stanford, Connecticut to a tiny, tiny little shoebox of an apartment in New York. And everything went into storage. And then I eventually moved into a not-so-small, but still pretty darn small apartment in New York. Uh, And most things were just boxed up. And now that I'm in a house, it's slowly getting unboxed. So I definitely feel your pain, and I would like to help. So the, the question that Daniel wanted to ask was... Could you use a PC to substitute this stuff just for the short term while everything's in storage? And yes, I absolutely think so. And I think you could even use that TV as a monitor, but you're just going to have to worry about a few things. So the easiest way by far to go about doing something like what you're trying to do is by having a dedicated PC using some kind of emulation system that can output 240p. So find those graphics cards that you could uh, output 15 kilohertz signals. You did mention emulating kind of newer consoles like PS3 and Xbox 360. So if that was the case, maybe setting it to 480p and using a downscaler might be better because then you could use newer, more powerful graphics cards. But either way, having a dedicated PC that only outputs 15 kilohertz is probably the easiest way to do it. I'm going to do a live stream at some point very soon using uh, all of the stuff I talked about in the interview with Calamity. And hopefully... That would be a good way just for people to familiarize themselves with it. Because while a lot of those live streams that I do, the real time testing are so boring, they're also a really great way to understand what you're about to get yourself into. And you could easily learn from my mistakes. So like in the last one I did where I spent 90 minutes trying to figure out how to use those god-awful controller mapping things, if you had actually sat through that or at least got to the end of that, you could just say, okay, so that's all I have to do. So Bob wasted the 90 minutes. Now I'll take the 10 minutes. So I'm still going to do it that way because I I enjoy them and because I think they're helpful, but warning, it'll probably be boring. Uh, Another thing that you could do is you could have one PC that's, that's built the way you want it, take one of the outputs from your graphics card and run that into a downscaler. So if you're on a budget GBS controlled, you would then need HDMI to VGA converter, which would be super cheap. Um, You could just set that output to 480p, 640 by 480 and then use the GBS control to downscale that to 240p. And then you would just need to get yourself some kind of converter like the HD15 to SCART, or you could build your own or get an Xtron device. But you would just need to get some way to convert the VGA output of GBS control to RGBS SCART. I think the HD15 to SCART is the easiest. So in that setup, you would need a PC, one output dedicated to 480p, a cheap $20 HDMI to VGA converter, then you would need the uh, VGA cable. And, and yeah, sorry. The HDMI to VGA converter. You could probably have one that could plug directly into the GBS control. And then the output of that, you would need the HD15 to SCART and any VGA cable. So you could probably do it for 100 bucks. Um, And, you know, uh, it's also all devices that you could probably use for other things. So I'm a little bit leaning towards recommending that because you could use it for a bunch of stuff would be about the same if you skipped the GBS control but bought a dedicated video card that you could set to 15 kilohertz. So that's really what you got to decide in the situation. Using your PC to emulate all of this stuff is perfectly fine, especially with the knowledge that you're going to have all of your original stuff in storage for the time being. You could always go back to that in the future. It's just a matter of how do you get that signal to 15 kilohertz. Use a video card that's much slower but super cheap and kind of easy to set up with a dedicated PC use a pc and split one of the outputs over that's kind of the thing that you're going to have to decide um also daniel wanted to make like a emulation um like a cabinet version of this and they had a situation that i've considered many times and never really found a decent solution for what if you have a tv that is sitting height that you always use for gaming with consoles or maybe if you have an arcade stick on your lap, but then you want to bring over something like a musical keyboard stand. I've seen those before. That works great. My buddy Phil showed me that. So like, you know, just a a music keyboard, but instead of the keyboard, you have your fight stick on there. And now you want to stand and have that experience. How do you then raise the TV up? And for a 29-inch TV, that's still going to be heavy. So you could find a motorized desk that could probably do that. You just want to make sure to check the weight. And you also have to remember that, or the weight limit of the table, sorry. And you also have to remember the weight of the front of the CRT is always going to be much heavier than in the back. It's not evenly distributed because the glass weighs so much on those CRTs. So that probably would work. You would just want to make sure that it's, it does what you need the way you need it. And a lot of those desks that go up and down are really, they're not even designed for monitors and speakers. They're designed for a laptop and they're kind of wiggly. The one that I had in New York definitely was, I have a a standing desk now that's stationary. It doesn't go up and down. So it's very solid. Uh, So that might end up being a costly thing, but you know, that also might perfectly integrate into your setup, depending on what you're doing. If you have a Big, large sturdy desk that can go up and down and you have the TV in the corner in front of or on top of one of the legs so you know all the weight is distributed on that side you might make that your desk and your gaming thing so you're going to have to decide that for your setup but if anybody has any suggestions I am all ears because I would certainly love to hear of something exactly like that where it could be easily sitting for consoles or you could stand up to make it something like that Um, Lastly Uh, You want to use good speakers with this, but you don't want to have to worry about magnetic uh, speakers messing with the CRT. Now, I am actually working on a video right now about this that I'm going to try to get out soon. Um, Every time I say that, you know, 20 things completely unexpected happen and it gets delayed or canceled. But it's basically going to be a video that says this. If You can't use unshielded speakers next to your CRTs or it could ruin it. And even if you don't think anything bad is happening, it still could be in the long run, depending on proximity to it and a lot of other things. So if you're on a budget, get some old PC speakers. I guess maybe even some newer ones could be magnetically shielded. And I guess if you buy brand new ones from like Amazon, you could always return it if they're not. But basically get your CRT to a white screen wave your uh your speaker in front of it and very quickly just one of these and pull it back and if it gets purple that means it's not shielded and if you can go right up to it and there's no change on the screen then it is shielded and that's by far the cheapest way to find something uh even today newer PC speakers are still shielded for whatever reason. So that, you know, maybe I'm assuming it's probably because of spinning hard drives and magnetic fields are never good for those, but that's a cheap and safe way to do it. And I think you could even find like uh, surround sound PC setups that are shielded as well. You could also go back and look at older speakers, but the, how many hours of use and what they were used for would determine how good quality they are at the moment I'm going to show some older options. I'm looking because I have an amazing set that I've used for a while here. Um, and there. if you have enough of a budget, there are some new speakers that are ridiculous. Like, I, you know, the end of the video is going to focus on this new combination that's under a grand for the amp and two bookshelf speakers. And I would be willing to lay out I would be willing to put those on the line and say that if you did like a blind taste test of this and sat down, you would, especially if you're somebody who's listened to speakers over the years, you would think that it was at least worth double the price. So a grand is way over the price range for most people. But if you're really into audio and for me, I'm using it for music, for TV, for movies, for video games. It's not just for video games. I mean, this was one of the best things I bought. I'm shocked at how good it sounded. So stay tuned for the full video that goes into detail on all of that. But it's essentially what I just said. You know, hopefully it'll get me clicks and new subscribers. (laughs) Logan wants to know if I ever see Everdrives or their competitors ever implementing a more dynamic user interface. Maybe something like they have for emulation for an end software. They like the idea of ROM carts, but for them, starting the system up and being presented with white text on a black screen makes the experience feel less special or exciting. They know it's silly, but they would pay quite a bit more for a ROM cart with a more engaging menu. So um, I understand that point 100%, and I agree in some cases. For me personally, the way my brain is wrapped around it is I prefer that basic dumb-looking interface because, for me, it's all about the games. I want to jump right in. However, after seeing really nice menus on some of these things, even like uh, the Genesis Classic, as much as I'm not a fan of the device itself, I think that that menu was beautiful, and it gave you a feel of the game that you're about to play if you have nostalgia for it, if you remember seeing those game cases... I'm not sure how somebody young who didn't grow up with those would feel about it, other than, yes, it looks prettier. So I do understand your point, and I think it's something that I hope that uh, any kind of ROM cart maker or even the Mr. Project would think about a little bit, but... I think there's some limitations on the ROM cart side. So obviously you have the limitations of whatever resolution is the maximum that console could output. You're not gonna be able to do anything about that, even if you're playing through a scaler. Uh, Then you also have to worry about how quickly it takes to load box art. And for some of the uh, Everdrives, the older ones and some ROM carts, it's very basic in that it uses the CPU on the console to bring up the menus. And that's why it just gives you the, as quick as possible to the game field. Others with uh, FPGA implementations could probably do more, but it's a lot of work and it's something that I don't know if they're going to put that feature up above other things that people might want to implement. So... To answer your question, do I ever see them implementing more dynamic UI? I mean, yeah, they're always getting better. If you look at the video I did about the Mega EverDrive Pro, and you could have those interactive menus where it, like, scrolls in the background. I'll see if I could find that. Um, I think I put something on Instagram where I kind of made... The menu to show how that works. I, I think there are definitely steps moving forward towards that, but I don't know if it'll ever be something like a dynamic emulation interface. So, you know, just my thoughts on that. But I wouldn't hold your breath. But there's definitely been steps forward, and I think every company that makes ROM carts has done a good job evolving. I'm just not sure if it could ever, if if it could ever get to emulation quality, just because of the limitations of the hardware itself. Vert penguin. Pingouin? Penguin, Penguin? Sorry, Vert, I have no idea how to say your name. No disrespect meant. Their question is not strictly gaming-related, but still RGB-related. They got an RGB Pi cable, and their aim here is not really to play some pixel-perfect games, but to play old cartoons and movies on their CRT. They see people struggling to make Kodi work on such resolutions, and it seems that the RGB Pi OS is for gaming only. Any chance you try to do that on a Pi? Uh, (laughs) p.s. don't get nervous with my nickname pronunciation it's french for green penguin that's funny thank you um i'm still probably saying that wrong so to answer your question what i would suggest that you do is download recall box you can get that directly from the uh raspberry pi loaders i would actually check the post that i just did up on retro rgb because it shows you to uh shows you a link to the new beta but Inside that menu, what you would do is, as, as I learned in the very long stream the other day, you load up Recall Box on your Pi, you boot to HDMI, then you set your options there. You could even set to boot to Kodi, but it has Kodi built in, which is very cool. And then you go into the options and set the RGB interface to RGB Pi. Then you reboot with the RGB Pi built in, and you should be able to access the Recall Box software, and then, of course, load Kodi. Once again, you can set Kodi to load first, so that would be probably best for your situation. Because in that uh, in that way, you're not really going to be using Recall Box, but it's there if you need it. So you could always use a button combo to go play some arcade games or something. And I think they've gotten that working better than most others. I know that 480i was an issue, which is a big deal because that's the resolution of VHS tapes, lots of DVDs, laser discs. So you know it it's important that this is fixed eventually, but I think it's at a place where you could start testing. For me personally, I would love exactly what you're talking about because uh, I'm doing a whole other podcast on this soon, but there's definitely content that benefits from being watched in 480i on a CRT. And while it's not a lot. Most actually think there, you know, you could have a choice between a couple of devices and choose what your eyes think are best. I truly believe there's a handful of stuff that really is only truly experienced on a CRT. And hunting down a VHS player that's still working, that's not going to eat your tapes without leaky caps, hunting down that exact tape or, I guess, laser disc without laser rot or anything like that. That's rough, but getting those files that were ripped in their native resolution and playing them, even your own files for content that you have, and playing them on a Pi I think is awesome, and I think it's something a lot more people should be worried about. So uh, give that a try and let me know how it goes, but I would also like to do this exact same thing and start testing. Joe Bailey said they have a main machine they're currently powering with a Linux desktop they're thinking of switching out to a pi 4 for a simpler setup what they would love to do is be able to just hit the power switch and have the device turn off without having to shut down via a software menu like on a regular arcade machine any way to set this up or suggestions for another solution that could achieve this well joe you're about to watch a lot of nerds get really angry with me but i turn off my pi by just hitting the off switch whenever i'm done And I don't know if this is good or bad, and I don't really care because exactly like what you said, you just want to be done with it. You don't want to have to go to shutdown. You want it to feel like an arcade experience. And I think that as long as you back up your configuration, so, uh, you know, you back up your SD card, you back up any config files. Worst thing that could happen is you turn it off as it's writing to the SD and you have to format it and start over. Now, I do think that in the situation of if you have the ROMs on the micro SD on a Pi four, that could be tricky because if you corrupt that, then you're gonna have to recopy everything. But most of us put ROMs on a USB stick, or for me personally, I'm I've switched my network setup like 10 times in the past six months, but I am finalizing a retro NAS setup and I'm keeping all of my ROMs there. So if I were in the situation where I just had it wired into my arcade machine or I bought one of those uh, USB-C power adapters with the switch in line, if I just hit the, or or you get an Argon One case with the switch, whatever. If you hit the button to turn it off and I corrupt my micro SD card, it's going to be like four minutes to fix it. And on top of that, out of all of the times I've done that, it's never corrupted it. Now, I know that's like saying I've been smoking for 40 years and I'm still alive, so smoking doesn't hurt people. I know that's bullshit and I know there's probably a chance, but for me, it's always risk to reward. Do I save that time of pulling out a keyboard and mouse or rebooting or whatever else I got to do every time I want to use it? for what's the worst that could happen. Really, it's just corrupting the micro SD card. And if you have your ROMs elsewhere, even if you ruined the micro SD card, you get another one for like six bucks. So, And I've never ruined one. So for me personally, that's what I would do. The only thing I would ask is, why are you switching out a Linux desktop with a Pi 4? Um, is, it, is it really just for simplicity? And if that's the case, I would try the Pi first and then see. Because Pi 4 gaming is excellent. I think it's really at a place where people would enjoy the experience with not many hiccups. But if you're using a very powerful desktop, you might notice a difference. If you were like me back in the day where I used like a Core 2 Duo machine, I think a Pi 4 would be faster. So we'll see. But I definitely just wanted to mention that just in case. But if your setup is using an old PC and you want to move over for a simpler setup, I would just make sure your ROMs are elsewhere, back up your config files, and I would just turn the thing off. But hey, feel free to flame me in the comments. Feel free to tell me I'm an idiot, but tell me why. Tell me if I missed something because I'm doing this from the perspective of the worst thing that could happen is I ruined a $6 micro SD card. If I'm missing something, let me know. I'm always all ears. But I really think that's the worst and very unlikely worst scenario that could happen. He just watched my great video on getting started with the Mr. Thank you very much. They need help with setting up a Mr. Cade though. It's a little more complicated. Will there be pre-configured packages for the Mr. Cade someday? They're not sure how much RAM they should get. And they're planning on using it for a CPS1 core and eventually the CPS3 core if that ever comes out. So there's a few things to note. First of all, it's not really that much more complicated. Please check out my Mr. Cade video that I did. Um, I built that into a mini Mr. Cade, which I'll be selling soon, which I think that was the perfect, perfect little arcade machine for a small apartment, by the way. But now that I have a house, I would like just a larger sized cab because I finally can for the first time in a long, long, long time. But to get back to your actual question, the setup isn't that much different as long as you have a USB keyboard and you know maybe even a keyboard and mouse or something plugged in, this way you could map the controls. You have to wire it in properly, but if you've ever wired an arcade machine, it's the same process, so you don't need any new knowledge there. The only question is, what's going to happen for cores that require uh, dual RAM sticks, if that's a requirement? At the moment, the CPS 1 core does not require that at all. There's no word at all if the CPS 3 core will have it. So, I would personally just not worry about dual RAM until that's, a, until that's been known as definitely a requirement for what you want to do. And also don't forget, if new things are added that do require it, that doesn't mean you still can't use the vast library that doesn't. I just would get the largest RAM module possible, the 128 megabyte one. And people disagree with me on this. Some people say, you know, you're telling people to waste their money, not everything needs it. I think the Mr. Project is growing so fast that to have this extra memory available is is a really good thing. Uh, if you're on a budget, you can get a 32 meg or a 64 meg, and then you would just have to always look up which cores, or which games from which cores required what. But at the moment, if you just get a 128 meg module, you don't even have to look it up. You just It's always going to work until dual RAM is required, if it ever is actually required. So just to circle back around, um, check out the Mr. Cade video I did, but treat it like an arcade machine for the button wiring, you know, your control sticks and your buttons and setup. Otherwise is pretty much the same as Mr. So follow the video that I did get it working with HDMI, then add your, uh, whatever your jam interface is. So Mr. Cade is the one that you chose and wire your controls to that and then use a keyboard, USB keyboard to set up and map those controls. And then that's pretty much it. The only other thing I will add is I always have my USB, my little wireless USB keyboard that I showed in the video connected to the arcade machine, because while the button mappings on consoles are pretty straightforward on the arcade machines, I love to have the extra buttons mapped. So for things like, um, like some shooters that, If you hold the button for shoot, it charges, but if you just press it, it shoots. I actually like to map a second button to that and only turn turbo on one of them. So technically two buttons shoot, but if I hold one down, it's firing the gun, and I let go and hit the other one, and it it, uh, boosts the charge up. And in order to do that easily, you would really want a keyboard connected. So I would, you know, that is like the use case for those little tiny wireless keyboards. Keep it tucked behind whenever you want to do that. Just grab it, flip it on. Battery lasts like a year if you only use it that way. And they're USB chargeable. So that's kind of cool too. But that's my only other suggestion. Other than that, it's pretty straightforward. So you should have a fairly easy time setting it up. The Remora just did something that every single person who's modded a whole bunch of consoles before has done at least once in their life, or if you're like me, you've done it quite a few times. They purchased a console and started modding it before they tested it. It's happened to me before. I I spent time chasing ghosts just to realize the console I bought was broken to begin with, Uh, so don't feel silly about that. It happens to the best of us, but... There is an issue that needs to be worked on. It's a one-chip O3 Super Nintendo, and when they tested it after installing Voltar's bypass, they couldn't get a signal from their HD retrovision cables. They pulled it back apart and couldn't find anything wrong with it. During their install, they removed the capacitor that provides composite sync since they were using Voltar's board. I think you mean... uh, C-Sync capacitor on the motherboard which wouldn't have really mattered anyway because it's a one chip 03 that doesn't have C-Sync run but let's roll with this Um, they can't locate their composite video cables to test with but when they they put a jumper from C-Sync to composite video it started working so there's a few things that's happening here first of all I would not leave that jumper there until you've determined exactly what's happening I mean that with respect. I just want to make sure your console, uh, you know, stays alive. The other thing is that HD retrovision cables sync on composite video with the Super Nintendo so that they could be used globally. That so You don't have to worry about PAL versus NTSC, and that could get dangerous because PAL has 12 volts on the C-Sync line. So it was the right move to do. It, it works perfect, but that means that if you put a jumper on, something happened to the composite video signal. So if you're using... HD retrovision cables, you actually didn't need to even install the fourth wire or do any of that. But the fact that it's not working kind of is making me think did you remove the correct capacitor? Did you remove the one for composite video by accident, killing composite video? And then when you sent C Sync over to that, now the HD retrovision cables are getting sync and they could work again. Now, if that's the case and you're routing C Sync over to it, you might be sending voltage that's too high to the HD Retrovision cables. So here's where you kind of have to really dig in deep and figure out what you got. If possible, if it's easy for you to do, I would try to either, at the very least, I would remove the cables from Voltar's board. So it's still there, but it's not doing anything. And I would start testing that way. Definitely grab a composite video cable. And this is one of those cases where if you buy a $1 unshielded AliExpress composite cable, perfect because you're only using it for testing. So that don't even plug the audio in to hear the loud buzz you'll probably hear. Just test it with the video and kind of go from there. Then you want to test why it, the HD retrovisions aren't working. Was the capacitor removed the wrong one? Is there something else going on? And then you just want to check which revision of Voltar's board you have because I think there are ones that have a jumper that lets you set the voltage lower, which you almost never would want to do. And I think some revisions even hit it at a voltage range where it could work with either. And I, you might want to double check, uh, you know, Zach's always inundated with emails, so I'm not sure if you'd be able to respond right away, but if you're in a situation where somehow the composite video chain was broken on that, which I've seen before, I've seen it not even just in the components around there, I've seen it where the chip itself was an output in composite video, you could do the opposite you could remove all of the composite video components from the top and bottom of the board so there's nothing coming from the original encoder and then if if the board revision works right then yes you could do that exact jump that you just described you will lose composite video but you'll have proper voltage c-sync going through both c-sync and composite video and while yes you're not supposed to add a y circuit to this In this scenario, you will never have both connected at the same time unless you build something custom. But using HD Retrovisions or plugging in an RGB SCART, Sync on C-Sync, Sync Sync on Composite, Sync on Luma, whatever, it's never going to access both. So that would be safe. You just want to make sure you're not sending over voltage to the hd retrovision cables so that was kind of a detailed explanation you could pull this apart and find a much more simpler way to fix this um you could of course if you wanted to try leaving that jumper in make sure that the composite video circuit is disabled so you've removed the components And then put a resistor between C-Sync and, you know, pin 3 and pin 9, you know. Start with a 470 ohm resistor, see if it works. And if it does, that could just be your solution that would totally be safe. You just want to make sure the existing composite video components are removed. So this is kind of a more detailed one, but I, I sort of knew the answer. So I figured I'd give it a shot. Hopefully I could point you in the right direction. Finney has a question that they haven't really had the opportunity to ask the larger community. It's pretty widely accepted that there should be AC decoupling caps for SCART cables, either in the cable or in the console most of the time. What they're confused about is why this is necessary when, from what they could tell, the standard is for the receiving device to do the AC coupling. Is this just because consoles can have really wild DC bias that is too much for the receiver's AC coupling to handle? Um, I'm going to wimp out on this question and say, yeah, I think you probably guessed it. However, I think it's way more complicated than that i think your answer to this is probably a great generalization but each console circuit is so wildly different because just for anybody listening remember that these video game consoles did not really adhere to any one specific standard so right now if you plug in an hdmi cable and you're sending a device 1080p there is a very strict set of standards for that to be officially 1080p whereas 240p wasn't even really an official standard until flat panels had to start uh, supporting it, or HDMI devices. So at, whatever the consoles did back in the day were just tricks used to get them working on TVs. And one example is Genesis consoles with Zenith TVs. The way their circuit work wouldn't even work with Zenith CRTs. You'd have to have their console sent to have a mod installed to work with your TV. So I think the reason that we say this stuff is because... Once again, this is another generalization, but in the context of the question that you asked, adding these caps could do really no harm, whereas not adding them could potentially have negative effects, whether it's just artifacts on the screen or potential voltage issues or buzzing or whatever else. So I think this is one of those scenarios where your general answer is probably good enough, but it goes way deeper and it just ends in because it's better, it's safer, why not type of thing. Um, So... Hopefully that wasn't too crappy of an answer, but I think it's kind of where my gut's telling me to go with this. Because the flip side would be to call up Steve from HD Retrovision and have a two-hour discussion about how this applies to each console in your TV. (laughs) AR wants to know if it's possible to play multiplayer on the MiSTer using a NES Core, an NES four-score controller adapter, and a snack adapter and the goal is to play multiple original controllers at the same time and use auto-fire functionality. So, whenever you're approaching Snack on the MiSTer in the case of using original controllers, the the best way to look at this is to say, if it can't be done on the original console, it can't be done with Snack, and if it can be done on the original console, it will most likely work with Snack, but there might be some tweaking needed. Probably not, though. So, to answer your question directly, if you're playing RC Pro Am 2 and you have four NES controllers plugged into the four score, the four score plugged into your snack adapter, that plugged into the Mister, and you enable it in the menu, yeah, you should be able to play four players. However, if you plug that into the snack adapter, you plug in two controllers into the four score, and you fire up Contra, you're probably not going to be able to do that because I don't think you'd be able to do that on the original NES. So, um, I don't know how that would work with USB adapters or anything else. I'm just talking about snack. And because what it really is trying to do is turn that port, you know, your little controller port into the original one. And it's trying to wire it directly into the FPGA's pins and work exactly like the original. So while it's possible for somebody to rewrite the core to add that functionality, I don't think anybody's going to do that <laughs> just because there's so many other options. No no offense or anything, but I think that's an excellent question, and it's something that I probably should figure out a better way to address when I am t- eventually talk about controller adapters. But it's a good question, and it's certainly uh, it's something worth talking about. So, you know, if you want to go play Gauntlet 2, RC Pro-Am 2, Bomberman 2, I think there's a bunch of games that support that adapter. It should work. Um, But if not, then, you know, probably not. Another quick one from Jason Guffey. Do I have any recommendations for analog video noise filtering without an analog to digital or digital to analog converter involved? They've seen cheap and simple mockups with caps and resistors, but they're not sure what's needed for 15 kilohertz video, specifically 240p RGBs. They've been making custom cables with the VGA style connectors, so they're imagining something intended to add a low pass filter to the OSSC's VGA port would also work for their needs. Um, so. Funny you mentioned that. The thing that I've been showing on my weekly ads that I've been making through JLCPCB is an updated version of the SCART Cleaner, and it's gonna do exactly what you just described. You're able to put SCART in, it'll output via a D-sub VGA style connector, and it'll have both the sync stripper and the low-pass filter be something that you could toggle. Um, the SCART Cleaner was originally designed for datapath video cards so you can go direct into those which is why i had a dvi connector i also chose the dvi connector because i wanted to make sure people know or knew just by looking at it that you couldn't just plug this into a vga monitor and even though there's warnings all over the page i still get a bunch of people emailing me saying i bought a dvi to hdmi converter and it won't work on my flat panel so you know i failed from that aspect um But with the VGA connector, that should be a lot easier. Of course, you could just use the VGA to DVI adapters to still use them on the data path. But it will also allow you to do exactly what you're saying. It's an open source project. You could uh, definitely make your own. The only reason the VGA design isn't up yet is because I haven't tested it yet. And I don't like to do that. So as soon as the order from JLCPCB arrives, I will put them together, finish the ad series that I've been doing, and then um, and kind of finalize that and put the, uh, have T put the files up. Tianfong helped me uh, once again, as always, finish that project. The other thing that we would circle back to is the general sync cleaner. And at the moment we did that with component video and you're even able to use dip switches in order to select what video signal you're using. 240p or 480i, 15 kilohertz, 31 kilohertz, 480p or even 720p and higher modes as well. And while the design for that is still up and you're welcome to build your own, we wanted to take it much farther than that and be able to have multiple inputs and outputs to be able to really utilize everything everything that circuit could do, as well as potentially normalize sync for devices that usually have a hard time interpreting it, like A or H series BVMs. And that project completely stalled and I got to get back on and, and really try to finish that one up. Uh, so the answer to your question is my recommendation is to use one of the devices that I just said, they are all open source. And if you would just like to wait, um, you know, the VGA one, which is probably perfect for your needs, should be up in two weeks. So uh, if you're in a rush, maybe see if anybody or you could just use the old design with the DVI connector. You would just have to get an adapter too. But yeah, that's what I would suggest doing is just hanging on and waiting. But the other thing, which I will be showing, at, you know, whenever this thing arrives, is that if you... If you use your OSSC for multiple inputs, you could actually use this adapter to plug SCARP through the VGA port and use this adapter's low-pass filter. So it kind of removes the need to using the OSSCs, which is kind of funny because that means if you wanted to use VGA with a filter, you could use the HD15 to to put VGA into the SCART input, and then you could use this adapter to put SCART through the VGA input with this low pass filter on it. So, kind of funny. I'll have to make fun of myself in the video and show that, but but yeah, absolutely. That, that project's... The uh, SCART cleaner part should be done in a couple weeks. I should have a fun, silly little video about it, hopefully short, that I won't end up Spending four days making, and then eventually, hopefully, we could just circle back around and do the final, uh, you know, the final configuration on just the analog cleaner or whatever we're going to call it, which has multiple in, multiple out, and uh, supports a wide range of resolutions with its low pass filter. Raz Tony Whatever has a PlayStation 2 and an official network adapter, and they would like to either connect a SATA hard drive or some SD cards in order to use Open PS2 Loader. And in that scenario, there's a couple of options you could use. You could use those conversion kits where you just take apart the adapter and you convert it from IDE to SATA. Yes, that notorious company is probably the one that makes them. um, So, you know, it kind of sucks, but if that's your only option, that's your only option. You could just use a built-in adapter. There are plenty of IDE to SATA adapters that would work in line with that. Um, Or you could use IDE to SD adapters, and I really would just kind of pick whatever's the easiest for your total setup. So what I mean by that is I am a huge nerd with an IT background since friggin' birth, so for me to take out a SATA hard drive, plug it into a SATA to USB adapter, run the software on my PC, plug it back in, or heck, even use some of the old IDE hard drives I have, super easy but not everybody has a pile of equipment to be able to use or to convert IDE and SATA to USB or whatever else. Most people have a way to read SD cards, though. So you might want to think about that, and if you only have an SD reader, try to convert it to SD. You could also try a retro NAS solution. You could try it for free if you have other components laying around, and you might not want to mod this at all. You might be able to just leave your network cable plugged in. For whatever reason, when RetroNAS was released, everybody was like, that sucks, don't go over the network, it won't work. But I, I don't think people have tried it recently. I think there's been a lot of updates to that. I think it works way better than most people think, or at least better than it used to. So you could just not use internal storage at all. On the flip side, you could try to do something like install a a SATA hard drive but use RetroNAS or other tools to push it down the network so you never have to remove it, so you never have to worry about the scenario that I mentioned before. But while I think your question is very good, and while I wish I had an easy answer, There's just so many right ways to solve this problem. So you really just have to decide what's the best right way for your situation. So I both love and hate answers like this. I love that there's multiple options that could help your setup in many different ways, but I hate that I can't just be like, yeah, just press this button and you're all set. So you have to kind of figure out what's best for you, but any of those would absolutely work and they should work great. So I would just think of your total setup to get the answer. James the Naked Snake had a question about retrobriting. Basically, what are the most dangerous methods of doing it that could cause your console's plastics to go brittle, or what are the safest methods? And every time I talk about retrobriting, I get bombarded with know-it-all trolls. So trolls, do your thing. Just please come after me and not James. It's a great question. So there's a few things that you got to remember. First of all, anything that you do to these plastics will change their chemical makeup a little bit. And the best way to visualize that is think about compounding your car. So you have a car or any device like that with paint on metal, you no know, motorcycles, boats, whatever. And it's old and it's dirty and you sit there and you do a really good job cleaning it. And you add compound solution and you use buffers and you go through and you put on, you know, some special protection wax at the end and your result is a gorgeous car that glows and glistens. And it was absolutely the right thing to do. And you're happy that you did it. And it lasts longer because it's protected. But in doing so, you absolutely thinned out the layers of paint on that car. So the end result, the risk to reward, was 100% worth it. But you're not changing the fact that you've, you've slowly changed and lowered the amount of paint on that car. So it's the same with these things. When you add any of these chemicals to brighten the plastics or you use any of these methods, you're definitely changing the plastic. But is the end result going to be better or worse? And it's my opinion that if you're just patient and take multiple steps to do it, you could get to a point where, yeah, your plastic might eventually get brittle and fall apart, but it probably would have anyway, and at least it's not going to be gross-looking yellow at the same time. And I think the best example that I've personally done of this is when I put on the first Retro Game Restore shell. I took out the front of a Super Nintendo's controller ports, and it was yellowed. And I did it live on stream, I took salon care formula, and I painted it on with a Q-tip and put it out in the sun, and the chat immediately lit up telling me I'm a moron, and that's never gonna work, and I know that's not how you do it. And 30 minutes later, I brought that piece of plastic in, cleaned it up, and showed the before and after pictures of it, and it did exactly what I wanted it to do. And the plastic never got brittle. It also doesn't look brand new, but it does not look gross and yellow anymore. So that's how I would approach all of this. I would say look up methods and see what people are using. Uh, Rourke actually strongly recommends heavily diluting the salon care solution. So maybe you know heavily diluting it, putting it in a glass Tupperware or something, leaving that in the sun, or or spraying it down, but leave it in the sunlight for like twenty minutes, half hour maybe an hour, maybe. But don't leave it in for longer periods of time. That whole, let's just leave your console out in the sun for a week, like, that was one of the silliest things I've ever seen. And I cannot believe that I got trolled for months because I, I said that wasn't going to work. I think anybody that's ever worked with plastic and chemicals knows that was a bad idea. So stay away from extreme methods. Stay away from heat. It's always bad for plastics, unless you exactly know what you're doing uh, James posted a video that I'd never seen before. And, uh, you know, it, it, they looked like they knew what they were doing, but I've also seen so many YouTubers with beautifully shot videos that have all of, you know, the confidence in the world and what they're saying that are full of shit and have no business giving those tutorials. So I don't know, maybe it was an awesome video. Maybe it wasn't. I I just, I just want to tell people to be careful. And if you do a little bit, and, you know, do you really need it to look flawless? So, you know, having it yellowed and gross, yeah, nobody wants that, especially if you just put on the Retro Game Restore shell. So do it a little bit. Do whatever ever method you think that you want to try. I have heard that submerging it in liquid hydrogen peroxide, like taking those, um, like, glass Tupperwares, and you, you fill that with hydrogen peroxide, you put your plastic in, you put the top on, you flip it upside down, you leave that in sunlight. I've definitely heard good things, but still... If somebody says, do it for an hour, do it for 20 minutes. Absolute worst case scenario. You take it out of the peroxide, you wash it with dish detergent to get the peroxide off. You wait a day and you go, that's not enough. It still looks ugly. Fine. Check the plastic, feel it with your hands, kind of very lightly wiggle it. Did it change it? Does it feel like chalky? Is there something, is it discolored in spots? You know, it really just kind of, figure out what's going on and go from there. And I guarantee you most of the time that you do this, you're going to have good results in a short period of time that most people are going to go, you know what? It's good enough. Definitely better than I started. I didn't hurt anything. Let me leave well enough alone. So I think that's a good way to kind of approach that. Um, I'm sure I'm going to get an earful from everybody every time I, I give advice like this. But while I never pretend to be an expert, the advice that I just gave you will almost surely not hurt anything. Now, if you get a Super Famicom from Japan that when you pick it up out of the box, it's already crumbling into pieces. Yeah, it'll probably destroy it, but it's destroyed anyway. So whatever. I mean, within reason, if you have a console that's in good shape, but yellowed, the advice of using a diluted solution for a short period of time would absolutely be something safe to try and then make your decision from there. So it was probably a lot longer an answer than you expected and everybody else wanted to hear, but I always have to add in those little gutches because there are certain trigger words in the retro gaming community and retro brighting's one of them. It just people light up and just insist that they have the absolute final answer. And I don't really think there ever is a final answer. I think it depends on that situation, that console, that piece of plastic, what its history was, what condition it's in. I think there's just, there's never a real answer for it. And I think you kind of have to use your gut when you're working with these. So, uh, you know, troll away, everybody. That's fine. I I can take it. I just, um, I think that, Everybody's retro writing videos that I've seen really misses the point of little is more in this scenario, and no matter what you do, you're changing the chemical makeup. It's just a matter of risk to reward. Richard Webster wants to know if I have any idea why RGB SCART from an Xbox 360 doesn't work with an Xtron crosspoint, with or without a sync stripper, and with the official RGB SCART cable, as well as a third-party one. Um, I honestly have no idea, Richard, but I've never tried because I don't think you could get any signal other than 480i from the Xbox 360 SCART adapter. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm thinking of the original Xbox, but if that was the case of the original Xbox, it's probably the same on the 360. So in almost every case, I would suggest using component video or VGA video. And if you need an all- uh, all SCART setup for whatever reason, you could go VGA into the cross point and then use a sync combiner on the way out or something like that. Or I guess maybe even use a sync combiner on the way in if you want to build your own, um, you know, glued together Y-cable solution with the circuit built in. Those are cool. Steve from HD Retrovision made me one that I use all the time. Just use the right circuit. Don't just plug it into a Y-cable. But that might be able to work. But then you would just want to check your resolution limitations, if any, from that point, was you would using the VGA adapter prevent you from hitting 480i if that's the goal? I would double check, but generally speaking, you could do everything that you need through component video. I think if you're going 480p and up, VGA would be a good solution. And I think the RGB SCAR output really is only 480i. Please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going from memory and I've never tried it myself, but I think that's kind of the situation. Um, You said you're picking up a comp to RGB in the near future, so you'll be able to test if it could connect that way using component cables that support 480i. Um, That would totally work, um, but I would look into the VGA cable too. And if anybody can answer this for me, that would be amazing. Can you plug in the VGA cable to your Xbox 360 and get 480i? Or is it like the Dreamcast where you, you can't do that? It's only going to be 480p. Because if that's the case, that might actually be the best solution for you. So, or and cheaper too. But Component's always going to be a good option as well. So anybody could help with that. I'd really appreciate it. But um, hopefully I could point you in the right direction with this, Richard. Andrew Fiore just picked up a Panasonic Plasma that has an advertised refresh rate of 600 Hz. They believe that number has more to do with the panel technology than actually accepting signals up to that rate, but their PS5 allows for a 120 Hz signal to be fed through to the panel, and it seems to be working. So do do I see any benefits or harm running it at 120 Hz? To their eyes, it's so minor of an improvement that it might actually be a placebo, but they also want to make sure that they're not going to kill their new TV anytime soon. So, excellent question. Um, I do think you're right and that the refresh rate advertised is that of how plasma technology works, and I think that was a marketing thing, and like, well, we have a 120 hertz panel. Well, we have a, you know, ours is 600, so eat it. I think it was kind of one of those, um, and I don't think the electronics in there that translates the HDMI and analog signals to um, to the digital signals that the panel recognizes, I don't know if that would have had that built in. But those are excellent questions. So if anybody could help us with this, first and foremost, is it dangerous to send a 120 hertz signal to that Panasonic plasma? And even though it's working, is there any danger? Now, I this is a guess, and I hate to guess in situations like this, but my gut is telling me that if it's a digital signal, so you're plugging HDMI into that, and it's working then there's no problem digital signals aren't going to send more voltage like you know with the C sync scenario and i don't know if it would be a, a big deal with component video but i don't think ps5 could do 120 hertz over component so i'm assuming you're talking about digital so question number 1 will it harm your your panel in any way or i guess maybe even the ps5 My gut's telling me no, but I really would want somebody who's smarter than me to clarify that. So please, anybody out there, let me know. And question number two, is it actually running at 120 hertz? Or is the panel just dropping half of the frames and feeding it a 60 hertz signal? My gut also kind of tells me that's what's happening. But once again, I would really prefer if somebody smarter than me stepped in. So smart folks out there, you mind helping out with this one? I personally would love to know the answer to this myself. I have two plasmas one of them needs repair it's a 50 inch 3d plasma the other one is working and does not need repair and it's a 50 inch non-3d plasma and i would love to test that out on both of them but you know i would certainly like to know the answer to those questions myself first so any help out there would be greatly appreciated well that's it for this time if you're new to these q and a's please ask any question that you have wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an older post. Plus, as you saw today, I really just like scrolling through and answering them in real time like this. So, any question you got, fire away. If you're not a supporter and you would like to be one, please check out the links in the descriptions of everywhere you could find this, and there's ways to help from monthly support to tipping to buying the exact same thing you were going to buy anyway at the exact same price, but I end up getting a fraction of a penny for each sale, which is a big help that definitely does add up a while back a couple of people bought like printers for their office using the affiliate code it was a really nice gesture and thank you all but heck even if you can't support in any way if you enjoy this content please at least tell your friends cuz maybe we could bring some more subs in and either way thank you so much to everybody who does support in any way possible cuz it's you who's keeping all of this stuff alive so thank you all very much and i'll see you next week and maybe hopefully soon tonight or tomorrow on the what not stream with tito